of our our uh, typical skyline looking to the west in Calgary, you will immediately recognize that behind me is a perfect representation of the Rocky Mountains. And Ryan Nickel has, uh, is in the process of constructing this for our Vacation Bible School that starts this Tuesday. If your kids are not signed up, I have no idea if there's any room left. I know that uh, at the end of last week, they were talking about how full things were. And so if, if you're not signed up, hopefully there's some room for you. But it wouldn't, be surprised, wouldn't surprise me if they said to you, you know what? We are full because we've got so many kids signed up. So it's a, it's a good thing when Vacation Bible School is absolutely filled. I also wanted to mention this morning that Stan Helton and his wife, Pat, are here this morning. Stan and Pat, would you just kind of wave your hands at the crowd? Stan is the, Stan is the new president of Alberta Bible College. And I, I think I'm speaking correctly here. As far as I know, this is the first time in the history of ABC when the president of that institution has been from the a cappella background, which you are. And so he has an a cappella Church of Christ background and... Uh, and this is the first time I think that that's happened with ABC, so I'm grateful that that's taking place. And I just uh, wish you all the best and pray that God blesses Alberta Bible College with Stan's coming. That should be a good thing for that institution. I want you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles. We're going to get there in a second to Matthew chapter 10, which is on page 688 in the Pew Bibles. And this is kind of hold on tight there for that to that place for a moment. We're actually in the middle of a series that focuses on some things that the church does best, the church at its best. And the fact is, is that we read constantly in our world today about how Christianity does things poorly. There are criticisms all the time of the church, sometimes out of our mouths, but a lot of times out of the mouths of others. They like to criticize us. They talk about the church and how poorly it does different things. And the fact is that there is some merit to these claims. And so I'm familiar with history. I'm familiar with the Spanish Inquisition. I'm familiar with the Crusades. And I'm familiar with slavery in the southern part of the United States and the the, uh, attempts that were made to justify that by Christians who in many cases were slave owners. I am aware of the issues we've had here with residential schools. I am not in favor of bombing abortion clinics, and some people have done that in the name of Christ. It's a tragedy when that happens. I'm familiar with, in places like North Africa, the problems that have occurred as Christians have gone to war against other people. I'm familiar with things like Australia or Africa or in America, where people are not always treated well when they come to those places and sometimes by Christians, they're not treated well and they need to be. So I'm familiar with all of that. But I also know the great blessings that come into our world because of Christianity. And so for this series, we're talking about the things that the church does best. And there's three things that we've talked about already. We've talked about how our faith is a force for social justice. And in fact it is. So we've talked about things like even here in town. The drop in center. Has some kind of basis to it. That has faith behind it. People who initiated that had faith. Or something like the mustard seed. Or the dream center. These are all somehow founded initially. With some kind of faith based. Person. 
individuals who had a dream and decided they would minister to others in the name of Jesus. And I'm grateful that happens in the name of Christ. We also have talked about our faith as a source of spiritual fulfillment. We recognize that we are not here all by ourselves. And that we're not just matter. I'm not just a combination of water and some molecules and some chemicals. Put all that together and that's all who I am. There is more to me than that. And in fact, I'm a spiritual being. There's a spiritual reality about who I am. And when I die, I absolutely believe there will be some remnant of me that continues on. I'm going to live after this life. And I think Christianity does a wonderful job of talking about what it means to be spiritual. We've also talked about our faith as a source for community and relationship. And we talked about that last week. And and, uh, Francis made mention to it this morning in the Lord's Supper as well. That we are, in fact, a community of faithful people who love one another. That there's unity here. And that God created us for relationship. He himself is at core relational. And so this morning, I want to continue with this theme of talking about how we are trying to be the best we can be as a church and talk specifically about what it means for the church to hold up the value of family. You know, one of the things that I discovered in just the last couple of days here is just how heartwarming and how wonderful four-year-old children can be, especially if they happen to bear your last name. We typically get to see our grandson twice, three times a year sometimes. He brings his parents with him when he comes, and I'm glad he does. And the fact is, it was simply so fun, so encouraging to be with him and to just spend all of our time just loving. And it was such a blessing to just listen to him talk and listen to him sing and listen to him talk to his parents, listen to him sometimes get disciplined. And know that they're also doing that. Those are all good things. Well, yesterday morning, I looked at my phone and there was a video that was on there that had been played or I should say um, filmed from the back of a Jeep Cherokee driving through Kansas. And the video is this. You have to turn your head to the side, by the way, to see this. I couldn't rotate it. not adorable huh i think we should all see it again (laughs) look at that face it's amazing how he can lie on his side and do that the reason sorry i'm trying to move it now although i don't really want to um it, it was so precious to me to look at my phone and see him singing this song to us and it I think it's amazing. Of course, Skype is what does this, you know. The reason that we can have a relationship with him, really, I think at all, is because of Skype. We Skype with him every Sunday afternoon. And then when he comes up and he's able to spend some time with us, then we build this relationship. And it is so precious. It is so wonderful. And I, I just say all that to let you know how wonderful I think family is. And how wonderful it is to be with our family. And I'm grateful that Christianity upholds those kinds of family experiences. 
I remember uh, Dell and Carol Lason when they had their 50th anniversary here. Was it just last year or two years ago or I don't know how long ago now it was. It was down in the gym and I was there and experiencing with them the 50th wedding anniversary. And there was a video that was played that had numerous pictures. You know, there might have been 100 photos in the video, most of which were pictures of Dell and Carol with their grandchildren. And I have to admit, I was jealous because I don't get to have that experience all the time. But I was so thrilled for them that they get to have it. And we simply should not take for granted that experience of family and the way that God has blessed us with such wonderful relationships. The fact is that it's been that way from the beginning, that God established family and a priority on this social structure that we call the nuclear family. And so the Bible says that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And we all know what that means. They will become one flesh. That's an allusion to something. And it's more than just the sexual act. It means their lives are becoming one. And out of those two lives that have joined together, another life oftentimes comes from them. And when that happens, family is created. Children come forth. Things propagate. The Bible says a couple of chapters later that when Eve gave birth to Cain, she says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And so God is the one who ordains families and their beginning and then brings forth children to these relationships and creates family. And so God has always lifted up the family of one of his as one of his creations. And it seems as though it even brings God joy when families are created and fathers and mothers share in that event. Isn't it, isn't it the case that Jewish families are almost proverbial for the ways in which they deal with children. And Jewish mothers are proverbial in the way in which they deal with children. And so everybody knows that when a child goes out of their home in the middle of winter in a Jewish family, what is the mother going to do? She's going to make sure that that kid has the warmest winter coat on that they could possibly have. You're not leaving this house without your coat! And on a day when the child might eat as much as they possibly can at the table. What is the Jewish mother going to say to the child as they get ready to get down from the table? Are you full? Do you need more? Would you like another bowl of soup? You've had this experience. We don't have to have Jewish mothers who, to have that experience. But why do they do that? Because to them, their children and family is so central. And it comes right out of their relationship with God that makes family so special. This week I was at uh, Children's Hospital. Peter Toot's son, Ruach, had an uh, appendix burst. And if you've had that experience, I know Peyton has had that experience. Uh, that's not a good experience. And it will take him some time to recover from all of that. And so I got to the hospital, went to Children's, went down the wing and into the room. And who's there but Peter, of course, with his 12-year-old son. Just hanging out. And why did he do that? Because it's not just Jewish mothers and fathers who love their children in that way. It's all cultures that God has created to love their children in that way. It's a universal phenomenon. And when a mother or father even hears that some other mother or father is grieving over something that's happening with their kids, 
that grieves them. And we all know that nothing hurts more than when your own child hurts. And those of you who are parents who've had hurting children at any point and in any way right now, you know you're thinking right now about the ways in which your own child might hurt and how that impacts you. And there's probably some mother out here right now who is holding back the tears because she's just thinking about that time or that incident in her own life when indeed her children were hurting so badly and she could do nothing for them or about it except grieve. And God has created us just that way to care for our children because family means so much. Well, in that way, I'm like so many of you. And I hurt and I want to be the best parent that I can possibly be when my children are hurting. A few weeks ago, we talked uh, on Father's Day, actually, about some things that we need to do. I mentioned fathering intentionally. I talked about leading our family's priorities. I talked about giving them your time and attention, showing consistency and modeling, possessing an attitude of sacrifice and overtly communicating your love and care. All these things are so important. I had somebody say to me already this morning, uh, not knowing what I was going to talk about this morning or that, or that this was in uh, our sermon for this morning, and they said, boy, I was, you know, I was here on Father's Day, and I remember you talking about those things and it meant so much to me as a young father and I think about my own role as a father and want to be the best father that I can be. These things are extremely important to us. We care about family in our church and I'm glad that our church emphasizes family the way that it does. And that's why what I'm about to say to you might just shock you. The family relationship that we have in life is not the most important relationship we have. It's not. The most important relationship that we have is the relationship that we share, not with our earthly father, but with our heavenly father. And the most important thing that you can do for your children is not to be to them a great earthly father other than the way in which you point them ultimately to our heavenly father. And there's a sense in which what we are as fathers or as mothers or even as children that we can't be for our families what we really need to be unless we place this priority where it needs to be from the outset where God had placed it from the outset. I was shown a brief article in the last week written by Jonathan Storman, who preaches at the Highland Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas, where Lynn Anderson used to preach, where Mike Cope used to preach. And in the article, I, I was kind of surprised at this myself when I first saw it. It shocked me a little bit, but all of a sudden my thoughts about this morning started to, to morph because of what Jonathan said, because he talked about our concerns for family being, and listen to this word, idolatrous. Concern for family being idolatrous. And I, I mean, even now as I say it, I think to myself, idolatrous? Really? Like, is that possible? Is it possible for me to have such an attitude toward my family that it be, could become in some way idolatrous? That almost, ugh, that just strikes me as odd. And yet there's something about this that I think rings 
with some truth that we need to think about. And so now you're in Matthew 10, I hope, still. And I want you to look at these verses with me. Verses 34 through 39. Think of the page 688 in the few Bibles. Look at verse 34. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take this cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I must admit there's a part of me that doesn't really even want to read these words. They just don't even sound like Jesus. It sounds somehow too harsh. How can I mesh this with how I feel about family. Like I'm the guy who a moment ago puts my grandson up on the screen on purpose. Just so you can all see him. But also, of course, to make the point that there's incredible love between that grandson and myself and my wife and I and him and my son and daughter and Like all those relationships are so important to us. They're right at the center of our lives. How can we suddenly talk about a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law are going to hate each other? That just seems strange. And it certainly seems like something that Jesus would himself not be talking about. But he does. Now, listen to these words from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Anyone who does not provide for his relatives and especially for their own household is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Clearly, God cares about the family. Clearly, he wants us to love our families and to treat them well. Our earthly families are a high, high priority for us. But are they to be the absolute highest priority? Flip over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. It's on page 737, I think, in the few Bibles. These words are very similar to what we just read in Matthew 10. Starting with verse 51. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division... From now on, there will be five in one family, divided against another, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, which pretty much covers it all. And those are, as I said a moment ago, pretty harsh words. Difficult at one point to swallow. Are you serious, Jesus? Is that the kind of relationships that you want to exist between family members? And of course he doesn't. Jesus doesn't want us to hate our relatives. He wants us to embrace them and love them. So what's the point? The point is that in relation to who God is, everything else pales.
It's as if, in comparison to how we are to love God and serve Jesus, we have hate for our relatives because we love him so much. And again, it's not that we're really supposed to hate them. He doesn't want that at all. But in comparison with, there needs to be that kind of relationship. And so I would say, after looking at those verses, that when we love anything or anyone more than we love God, we end up dishonoring. We dishonor and distort and hinder or can even do damage to that which we and those whom we love. In other words, and and by the way, I say this at every wedding I ever do. Like whenever I have a, a bride and groom standing here in front of me and we're talking about them getting married, I say to them, I look at them and I say, you need to love God first. Because you cannot possibly be the kind of husband to your wife that you need to be if you don't love him first. So in order to love her best, you've got to love him first. And then I turn to the bride and I say the same thing to her. You cannot love your husband the best if you don't love God first. It doesn't work that way. God has constructed that marriage relationship, that family relationship, so that when you love your spouse before, or more than, or better than you love God, you cannot be the spouse for them that you want to be. It does not work. And so it's as if in relation to our spouse and loving them that we need to love God first and foremost and above and beyond all so that we can then love properly those whom we love in this world and on this earth. And if we get those things distorted, turned around somehow, there is a problem. Now, let me make this comment too. And this is directly coming, you don't have to read it now, but from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You know, 1 Corinthians 7, there's an awful lot of talk by Paul about not getting married. There's a huge discussion there about virgins and about how they're supposed to respond to God. There's discussion there about those who were previously married and are now unmarried, how they're supposed to respond to God. And the whole point of so many of those verses is, don't get married. Which is shocking. You just think, really? Is, is this Paul talking? Well, Paul himself wasn't married. Kind of makes almost some sense that he would say this. Do you know who else wasn't married? Jesus wasn't married. Which makes me think that in terms of him being the model that he's to be for humankind, marriage doesn't necessarily have to be part of that model. And in fact, Paul's point in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is there are so many times when the unmarried have an opportunity to serve the Lord with all their time, all their focus, all their heart, and the married, Paul says, are distracted, carried away by the things of this world. And again, what's the point? The point is is that God wants us more than anything to have relationship with him. That is our priority. It has to be our priority. It's his priority. There's a sense in which God doesn't care whether or not you get married. What God cares about is whether or not you give your heart completely to him. 
And so the unmarried have to have this perspective about life and about where they're headed that allows them to completely devote themselves to the Lord's will. And when they do, their relationship with God is secure and it, and it should be more than secure than it would be in one sense if they're married because they don't have those distractions. Now, is that a denigration of the family? Is God saying, I'm not into family, don't care about that, don't care about children, don't care about marriage? Of course not. He's the one who created those relationships too. He's the one who brings forth children. He's the one who created marriage. But we need to love and devote ourselves to him first. And so... Paul doesn't lift up marriage as the epitome of Christian life. And neither did Jesus. There is no one more devoted to family than me. But I would hope that if Robin was to say to me, and she's never said this, but if Robin ever said to me, do you love me more than God? I would like to think that when she heard the word no. That a smile would break across her face. And that she would think to herself, that's good because I don't want you to. I want to be the Christ-like husband that I should be. I want to serve and honor my wife the way I should. I want to love her with all of my heart and all of my life. But I don't love her more than I love Jesus Christ. And I cannot be the husband for her that I want to be unless I love Christ first. And so do you love your children more than you love Christ? I actually hope not. Do you love your spouse more than you love Christ? I actually hope not. Because you can't be the best parent and you can't be the best spouse you can be unless you love them, God, first. You can't be as wise in your treatment of them unless you love God first. And to those who are single, there's a sense in which those of us who are married, we kind of owe you an apology. We sometimes act like marriage is the God-accepted norm and that you're the aberration. And instead, I want to say, serve Christ first and always. If you decide to get married, Paul says, you've not sinned. But if you, and if you do decide to get married, you need to find somebody who says to you, I actually love God first, if that's okay. But then if you never marry, you're in the position of serving Christ with your whole heart in a way that the married person cannot. And I would say, exercise your role. So the church needs to be about family, but it's not all about family. It shouldn't even be first about family. We have a prior love, and his name is Jesus, and we need to love him first. Let's pray. Lord, help me to love you first and always. And Father, I pray that everything else that comes in my life will fall into line appropriately after that.
Help me to give myself completely to you first so that I can be the father, the husband that I need to be. And correct me when I'm wrong. And Father, I pray the same for every husband, every wife, every child in our church family. That we would put you first and that therefore we would be able to be what we need to be for each other in our families because we did that. And for the family who isn't there yet, Father, I pray that you'd work with them and take them to that place. For the father who isn't there yet, work with him. To the mother who's not there yet, teach her what she needs to know to put you first. In the process, help our children to put you first even before their parents, so that we can together serve you as families. Thank you for the way in the church that you lift up family, but most of all, thank you that we're allowed to lift you up and that that impacts our lives the way it should. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.